13. We'll begin reading in verse 33 and go through chapter 14, verse 20. God's word says, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said to me that I shall be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourselves other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirza. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was twenty-two years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. Well, Dale Davis recounts a Peanuts cartoon strip around Christmas where siblings Lucy and Linus are holding hands and smiling. And Lucy says, we're brother and sister and we love each other. 
Now, if you know Charlie Brown, the comic strip, you know that Lucy doesn't really love anyone, let alone her brother. And so Charlie Brown says, do you really think you can fool Santa Claus this way? Which Luce, to which Lucy responds, why not? We're a couple of sharp kids and he's just an old man. You know, humans are often trying to fool those in authority. Whether it be cheating on tests, employees taking longer lunch breaks, or taxpayers evading taxes. And yet while we do it, we try to give the impression that we're actually doing what we should be doing. Well, here we are in the midst of the history dealing with the reign of King Jeroboam. We saw back in chapter 11 that God spoke to him through the prophet of Ahijah, who declared that God would take ten tribes from Solomon and give them to Jeroboam due to Solomon's sin. If Jeroboam would be faithful to God like King David, then he would have a long reign and his descendants would rule for many years. Yet then we saw that Jeroboam, when he became king, he feared, he thought, well, all of the Israelites will go down to Jerusalem to worship, so to secure my kingdom, I need to make my own gods. So he made two golden bulls like Aaron did, and then he made his own priests and set up his own days of worship. But then we saw that God responded to this by sending a prophet to him who rebuked him. But then Jeroboam stretched out his hand to seize that prophet, to arrest him, and God shrunk his hand. And when Jeroboam cried for mercy, God relented and stretched his hand out. The story then took a slight detour. As we followed that prophet who came and rebuked Jeroboam, but then didn't obey the word of God himself. And now we come back to Jeroboam, and we tragically see that he still won't obey. If you have a bulletin, you can see on the back the outline for today's sermon because we're going to see in the first two verses that Jeroboam is one of those people who has to learn the hard way. Then we see him trying to trick God, but God responds by judging the rebellious. And then we get a note of showing us so that we might realize what matters. But it all begins with Jeroboam. He surely heard of this prophet. The story must have gone far and wide of this prophet who rebuked Jeroboam, but then went in was killed, and yet a lion and a donkey sat there and did no harm. Yet though Jeroboam experienced that, experienced his hand being restored, experienced getting the kingdom, notice what verse 33 says. Because even though he had all that, it says, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways. He continues in his sins. You know, he's the type of person who sees three people go up and touch a stove and get burnt, but he has to go up and touch it himself. He has to learn the hard way. And then, even though he's been burnt, a little while later he goes, well, maybe I could touch it now. Nope, still can't touch it. God says in Psalm 32, 8-9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So God's saying he wants to instruct us, and then he warns, be not like a horse or mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay in check. Now, God doesn't want to treat us like stubborn animals that have to be forced with leather and metal bits. Thus he also says in Proverbs 26.3, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. And Jeroboam is that type of person who has to have the rod because he will not 
obey. Well, God leaves no doubt about what he thinks of Jeroboam's continuing in this sin. And thus, verse 34, continuing the false worship, it says, And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam. And his actions are not only going to influence him, they're going to influence his children. And they're going to influence the whole nation. It's going to affect his family because they're going to be cut off from the face of the earth. It will affect the nation because his sins will now become the barometer for the sins of Israel. And they will eventually go into exile. As you go through scripture, some people are known for positive characteristics. The patience of Job. The wisdom of Solomon. The faith of Abraham. Well, Jeroboam is going to be known as the one who led them into sin. Flip over to chapter 15, verse 34. Because this refrain will happen in a similar way at least ten times. There it says, talking of King Asa, it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Or flip over one chapter, 16, 25 through 26. It's describing another king. Verse 25 of chapter 16, it says, Omri did what was evil on the side of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the sin of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And we see throughout Scripture and throughout life that leaders influence people. Now we always have to be careful because Israel is an Old Testament theocratic state that had a unique relationship with God that no other nation has ever had. And so we can't draw a connection from an Israelite king who draws, who leads this nation in false worship to a U.S. political figure. Yet while we can't draw a one-to-one correlation, we can draw important principles. We can draw parallels. Thus, in the New Testament, Paul writes that these stories are written for our instruction. And so Christians have made strong statements about the necessity of leaders, whether that be in the church or the home or the school or the government, the need for morality. There is one such statement written in or several in the late 1990s. One of them said, we are aware that certain moral qualities are central to the survival of our political system, among which are truthfulness, integrity, respect for the law, respect for the dignity of others, adherence to the constitutional process, and a willingness to avoid abuse of power. We reject the premise that violations of these ethical standards should be excused so long as a leader remains loyal to a particular political agenda and the nation is blessed by a strong economy. We do not demand perfection, but we maintain that it is, in general, a reasonable threshold of behavior beneath which our public leaders should not fall, because the moral character of a people is more important than the tenure of a particular politician or the protection of a particular political agenda. Political and religious history indicate that violations and misunderstandings of such moral issues may have grave consequences. And Jeroboam here is serving as one of the examples in religious history of the grave consequences when immoral leaders reign. And yet the sad irony is, if you think about the big picture, all of this happened because Jeroboam was trying to control his life. Rather than entrusting it in the Lord's hands, he had to get it through his own conniving. And yet, he can't control it all. 
And things begin to go out of control because his child is sick and is about to die. And in it, he tries to trick God. We see that in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14. Because there, we move forward in some amount of time. We're not told how long. And Abijah, his son, is sick. And so then he tells his wife, disguise yourself so no one will know who you are and go to Ahijah, the prophet in Shiloh, who told me that I would become king. Along with the disguise, Jeroboam tells her to take ten loaves, cake, and honey. This gift matches the disguise because this would be a gift that a commoner, a poor person would give. And perhaps, though we don't know for sure, they're thinking, well, if she goes alone with a poor gift, maybe Ahijah will think well and want to give a good blessing upon her. But whatever their intentions, Jeroboam knows that once she talks to Ahijah the prophet, they will know what will happen to their sick boy. Well, his wife listens. She goes to Ahijah and to visit him, except the disguise is completely unnecessary because Ahijah, as he's gotten older, has lost his eyesight. Now, Jeroboam doesn't know this because he hasn't really cared about Ahijah. He's only wanted to hear from his own religious leaders that he has set up. Yet though he can't see, nothing escapes God's notice. And he tells Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming. And when she comes, you need to tell her the thing. And so, when she comes, he will give her a word. Now, I think as we read this, we have to realize no one will probably speak to you and say, there's parts of my life that God doesn't see. You know, we don't say that. We know, oh, of course, that's not true. And yet we act at times as though there are parts of life that I'm getting away with this. No one knows. Psalm 94, 8-11 says this, though. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Thus, though we may think no one else will know, everything will come to light. What happens in Vegas, or your bedroom, or in the workplace, does not stay there. It is known to the God who sees all. One day, every person will be held accountable for what they say, think, and do. And yet, one of the natures, that one of the parts of the nature of sin in us is it makes us foolish. It makes us think things that are completely untrue. I mean, just consider the foolishness of Jeroboam. He's sending his wife to go ask someone to tell the future. That's quite the ability to see. And yet he thinks, if we just put a disguise on, he won't know who you are. Well, if he can tell the future, don't you think he can see through a little fabrication? This is not what is really in front of us. And yet all of this happens because Jeroboam just won't trust God with his life. He schemed up a way to keep his kingdom secure, or so he thought. And yet, no matter how much planning you do, you'll never be completely in control of life. I don't know about you, but I like to be in control. Okay, that's not true. I love to be in control. And I get cranky. My family can attest to this. I get irritable when my day doesn't go the way I wanted. And that's sinful. But all along, what should we do? We should plan, and then we should 
give our plans to the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 declares, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The point in this is not that you shouldn't make a plan to say, wake up, oh, whatever God wants to happen, I'll just kind of float through the day. No, we should plan, but then we commit those plans to the Lord. Proverbs 16.3 encourages planning. It says, commit your work to the Lord. You have a plan, you commit it to God, and then you know through Him your plans will be established. And yet if you don't come to grips with this, if I don't come to grips with this, then we end up getting cranky and angry and frustrated. Because it doesn't matter. You can have a perfect plan. You can have insurance. You can have backup plans. And you know what? You can't control it all. Something will happen that is outside of your control. Now, you can keep that illusion of control for a time. You can make it seem like I got life going the way I want. But then the reality crashes through. For Jeroboam, the reality was a sick child. And it didn't matter his wealth. It didn't matter his position. It didn't matter his power. His child's life was in the hand of God. And many of you probably had to experience that same horrible situation where you see a child or you see something else and all you can do is cry out for mercy. You are powerless. You have no control. And so what does Jeroboam do? He seeks out God. But notice he doesn't seek out God to submit himself to God. He seeks out God only to get a blessing from God. And Jeroboam is not alone in this, for often people will cry out to God when life is out of control, but then once the emergency is over, they have no thought of God at all. You may be familiar with the life of John Newton, the famous hymn writer of Amazing Grace. Well, before he was a pastor, he was a sailor, and he tells of his life. And once he tells of a man on the ship who was a Christian, and he wrote, The crew only seems to have a notion of a superior power while danger is impeding. As soon as the danger is past, the crew proceeds to get drunk, swear, and to perform every act of impiety as formerly. Many years ago, while I was in seminary, a man started coming to our church who life was out of control. Through his actions, his wife had left him. He had gotten into alcoholism and affairs, and he started coming to ch church. And he seemed sincere. He seemed serious about getting his life right. And as he met with me and went to church and he started to get his life back together, he seemed to be growing. And then his wife started to meet with him again. They eventually, she allowed him to come back in the house. And the more things improved with her, the less he showed up at church until eventually we never saw him again. God was great to serve his agenda. It wasn't God is great, period. God was merely a tool for a bigger good. So why do you come to church? Why do you worship God? You may remember, adults, the Sunday after 9-11, the churches were packed. The fullest they'd been in years and probably the fullest they will be for a long time. Yet God was not fooled by a nation attending churches, nor is he fooled by anyone's public morality or religious observances or your ability to quote Bible verses or wax eloquently about theology. For the Lord sees not as man sees, First Samuel tells us, 
Man looks at the outward appearance. We can only see that, but the Lord looks at the heart. Earlier, Keith read for us John 6, and Jesus was talking about these people. Why are you looking for me? Why do you come? And he says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus could see through their attempts to manipulate him. And our religious actions may think, may cause others to think we love God, but he knows. He sees the heart. James Olson served in the CIA for 31 years as an international spy. He was then asked by former President Bush to come and lead an intelligence degree, a master's program for intelligence. So he left the CIA and came to start this program. But the CIA has rules. You cannot serve in a university if you were formerly of the CIA and have not made that publicly known. So he had to reveal his identity. So though he had served 31 years as an adult, as a spy, he had to tell his parents who never knew. He had to tell friends who never knew. He had to tell children Which, long story short, he had to tell him a little bit earlier. But for the most part, didn't know. 31 years, he lived a life that most people who knew him didn't know existed. Sadly, there are a lot of Christian spies. They lead a life that everyone thinks is one way, but inside is different. And scripture warns us, not only can you not fool God, you actually can fool someone. You can fool yourself. James chapter 1 warns, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving. Now it doesn't say deceiving other religious people, deceiving your spouse. It says deceiving yourself. You know, we can actually begin to believe our own lies. We can believe we're as spiritual as the words that come out of our mouth. And yet, James is warning us, don't deceive yourself. Be honest. Do I love God? Or do I merely love what he gives me? Is it that I trust in Jesus because, well, I guess I don't want to go to hell? Do you go to church because, boy, it would cause a big conflict if I told my wife or told my husband, I don't want to go today. Do you say the right answers because, well, it's just easier. If I say this thing, my parents are going to argue with me for a long time. So, you know, I I know what to say. Everyone will be happy. Once I'm 18, I'm out of here. Well, God sees. And he also warns, be careful that you don't begin to believe your own lies. Now, please don't misunderstand. The point is not, well, when you're in trouble, you can't come to God. Jeroboam should have come to God, but he also should have repented and said, God, forgive me for not coming to you in the good and the bad. He should have done what Psalm 50, 15 declares. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me the point is don't only come in trials come all of life and yet if we don't repent if we don't call on god then we'll be like jeroboam and receive judging for the rebellious that's our third point judging the rebellious because as the story goes on ahijah he's lost his sight but he hasn't lost his hearing and he hears jeroboam's wife coming in the house and he tells her he has unbearable news for her Though she thought she came as a messenger for Jeroboam, she's actually going to be a messenger for God to Jeroboam. And she must speak 
almost like a prosecuting attorney going and declaring to Jeroboam all that God would say. But notice chapter 14, verse 7. Because it says, Go tell Jeroboam, thus does the Lord, of, the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you. Now, it's not because I, Jeroboam's wife, exalted you. She is speaking for God. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I, I would believe God if he would just speak to me. Well, God has spoken to you. He's spoken through his people. He has spoken through his word. Parents, imagine if you are trying to get off to an event and you're taking some food and all of a sudden you're about to leave and you tell one of your children, I got to go get one thing from the grocery store. I'm hurrying. As soon as I get back, we have to go. I want you to go tell all your siblings, when I get back, we're leaving. Okay. You go, you get back, and you go in the door, and one of them's in their pajamas playing video games. And you say, didn't your sister tell you we're leaving as soon as I get back? Well, she claimed that you said, but I didn't hear it from you. No parent would go, oh, well, you're right. I didn't tell you directly, so it doesn't count. No, you would be furious and say, you should have listened. God has spoken, and we can't hide behind, well, he didn't speak to me. Well, he has spoken to you. He's spoken to the world and everyone in it through other people, and that is legitimate as him speaking himself. And here, Jeroboam's wife is speaking, I, 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 for God. I, what did God do? I exalted you, Jeroboam. I made you the leader. I gave you David's kingdom. Three blessings I gave you. But then, verse 8, though I gave you all those blessings, you did three horrible things in return. You didn't act like David. You made false gods. You cast me behind your back. So in response to God's three wonderful provisions, you've responded to three horrible sins. So having stated his gracious actions towards Jeroboam, and yet Jeroboam's utter disregard, verse 10, is God's judgment on Jeroboam. Calamity will fall upon Jeroboam's house so that every male will die. Now often the Bible speaks euphemistically in regards to intimacy and marriage. He knew her. To death, he slept with his fathers. To bodily functions, he relieved himself. Now that's not because the Bible is prudish or Victorian and can't speak about honesty the way life is. It's because God made some things in life to be private, to be covered. Yes, there are times when you should be blunt. You should use the correct anatomical words or describe things. But for the most part, there are times where we cover things, both with our words and our actions. And we need the wisdom. Is this a time to use a euphemism that gets the same point across or is this a time where i need to be blunt so there's no misunderstanding what i'm saying well we can go back and forth in air in this case and i bring all this up because the bible is actually a little bit more blunt actually a lot more blunt than what is said here here it says i will cut off every male the literal translation is i will cut off everyone who urinates against the wall if you've ever asked, can you write your name in the snow? You'll understand what's being said. What's being said is the men are going to be killed. 
Why does he talk in such a way? Well, because then he uses a similar analogy, and they'll be burned like dung. He's trying to say, Jeroboam, you stink. You stink like when people go to the restroom. Now, we can delve into unnecessary potty humor, but we can also act like that's a part of life that doesn't exist. It does exist, and God is saying, Jeroboam, that's what you're like. I grew up in a church where there's a man who served in the Pacific Front in World War II. And in his book, telling about his life and about the battles there, he told about when they would get to those islands, often the sailors, the Marines, the army men, would overindulge in the tropical fruit. Well, this sometimes had disastrous consequences, and especially when men would be scared. Well, one time, he and the other soldiers had to hit a beach in which the Japanese were up in the hills. And as machine gun fire is coming down, they're hitting the beach and digging out foxholes as soon as they can. And then he realizes the man he dove in a foxhole with had blown his pants. The fruit, the fear, and it ranked. It ranked so bad, he literally jumped out of the foxhole and went to dig a new one. Didn't matter that machine gun fire is coming. He wanted to distance himself from it. God is saying, Jeroboam, when you act that way, it stinks so bad in my sight. I want nothing to do with that. That is horrendous. You make me gag. You are disgusting. And so you are going to be punished. Punished in a shameful way. Verse 11, we see that his descendants will have disgraceful deaths. What's saying is, look, they're not going to have a funeral. They're not going to have their bodies taken care of. If they die, dogs will eat their bodies in the city. If they die in the country, birds. No one's going to come and pick it up and give it a nice funeral. You'll just see the birds in the heavens. They'll come and eat it. That's all they deserve. And all of this is so tragically ironic because Jeroboam thought, if I do this, it'll make my kingdom secure. And yet all he was doing was securing his kingdom's demise. As Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so Ahijah gives one last set of words to Jeroboam's wife, and that is when she gets home, her son will die. He will be the only descendant of Jeroboam who will be buried with honor. Not only that, but there's a kind of enigmatic statement in verse 13. It says, because there is found something pleasing to the Lord in this child. Now, what is it that pleases the Lord? Well, we're not told, but I think this should give us a streak of hope in this rather dark passage. Notice that even for a family that is completely turned from God, children can arise that love the Lord, that please the Lord. And that should give hope, because as I talk to Christians, sometimes you get the impression that they think, we can no longer raise children in this country who will please the Lord. It's too dark. Our country has gone too far. It's not true. In any place, God can raise up those who love and trust Him, who please Him. As well, this is a reminder that sometimes death is a blessing. All of the other descendants will go on to suffer. God in His mercy takes this child's life. So that he will not have to endure this. I am not speaking to why every single child dies. And it is a horrific thing if you have to endure that. But we should notice that it might be that God was merciful in those times. To spare that child or to spare those 
parents' future suffering. Again, we don't know, but we see here one example of sparing future suffering. And so more tragedy because of Jeroboam's sin is going to unfold. We see this in verses 14 through 16. They are going to be destroyed just like the reeds in the water. You may be at the beach and you see the water go. And what do the reeds do? They just go wherever the water takes it. No ability to withstand it. And that's what Israel will be like to their enemies. No ability to stop them. And so the land that God had given them will be taken and they will be taken over the Euphrates River. Over 200 years in advance, God is predicting that they will go into exile because they have turned from them, from him. And all because, verse 16 tell us, tells us, Jeroboam led them in this. As we said earlier, leaders matter. And yet all of this is really driving to the last point, and that is helping us realize what matters. We see in verses 17 through 20, Jeroboam's wife goes home, and exactly like God said, the child dies. But what does this do? Well, it authenticates the message. Ahijah just said this would happen, and it happens. And then, by chapter 15, verse 29, all of Jeroboam's descendants will have died, and then, within 200 years of this point, Israel will be in the exile. You know, often, we are like Jeroboam in that moment. It does not seem that God hears. It doesn't seem that God sees or in control. And we think we have to get control of our lives, yet all along God is in control. We can only keep that illusion. So where do you turn is the question. We even see the folly of that in this passage. I mentioned this earlier, but what did Jeroboam send his wife to do? He sent her to give a message, to seek a message about his kingdom, his child, because his kingdom is going to be based on how his son does. And yet, what happens? God uses the very messenger for his own purposes. The messenger gets recommissioned, so to speak, and she becomes a messenger for God. In other words, God's purposes will always come about. Yes, he works through our free choices, but the question is, are we going to align ourselves and submit to his will or are we just going to use God or seek to use God for our own? Only one will, only one kingdom will last forever. And we see that with even Jeroboam's death. And so we come to the end of Jeroboam and it tells us in verse 19, there's some other things written of him in the book of the Chronicles. And then as with every king, we're told how long they reign in the next one. He reigned 22 years and then Nadab, his son, reigned after him. And yet if you back up from this and said, well, what if a modern historian wrote about Jeroboam? What would they write about? Well, it would be much different than what we have here. I'm sure in chapter 11, rather than a brief comment that his mom was a widow and a brief comment that he went to be made in charge of Solomon's laborers because of his own good work, we would have had chapters of his horrible upbringing. We would have had chapters about how his industrious work led him to be boss. We would have then read several chapters of the emotional trauma when Solomon kicked him out of the kingdom, chased him out, and he had to live in Egypt. And then once on the throne, we'd probably have chapters of his leadership style and the battles he fought, and surely a chapter on the heartache of losing a child. However, almost none of that gets a mention. Just enough so we have the context. What's recorded? Well, we have a long section in chapter 11 of 
You need to obey like King David. Then we have a long section of how he set up false worship. And then we have a section of him being rebuked. And then lastly, it ends with him trying to trick God. In other words, what really matters to God is are you living your life in relationship to him? How did he reign? Kind of boring information to the author of the Bible. What wars did he fight? Not really interested in that. What was his reign like? It's not really relevant to the most important thing. How did he relate to God? That's what matters. Is your relationship to God and his word most important to you? Or to phrase it another way, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Funny, outgoing, always willing to help, kind, generous, hard worker. Those are all good things. But the question is, are those things that you want for your name and your kingdom or for his name and his kingdom? Are you living for man's applause or for God's? Richard Phillips tells of an accomplished young pianist. He made his concert debut at Carnegie Hall. And he played magnificently. And he departed the stage to an eruption of cheers. As he was standing behind the curtain, the stage manager called him over and said, You need to go out for an encore. But the pianist refused. The older man said, look around the curtains. Everyone is standing, a standing ovation. Go, take an encore. The pianist answered, do you see the old man in the balcony up there on the left? And the stage manager kind of peered and looked. And he said, yeah, I see him. He's not standing. But it's only one person. Won't you take an encore? The pianist replied, that old man is my piano teacher. Only when he stands will I take an encore. And Jeroboam thought, I'm securing life. I'm making sure my life is great. And he missed the number one thing. Am I seeking God or am I seeking after only the gifts that God gives? And so may we do as Jesus says, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what does he say after that? And all these things shall be added to you. Seek God for His goodness. Not just the good things He'll give you. Not merely for the better life. Seek Him because He's the best thing. And then trust that He will add all those good things to you. Let's pray.